Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Good morning, everyone, on what is in Nashville a beautiful Friday, Masters Week. And as the attendees come into the uh, room, I'll give a little bit of background on myself. My name is Brian Adams. I'm the founder and principal of Excelsior Capital. We are a commercial real estate investment platform based here in Nashville. And we provide direct co-investment opportunities to individuals, family offices, and boutique wealth management firms. And we focus on three things, direct co-investment opportunities, something close to that double-digit cash-on-cash yield, And then we provide people with all of the tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. This is a webinar series that we've been doing for probably a year and a half now, where folks in our network who are doing interesting things in the professional and services uh, and financial services space that we think others uh, should know about. And we do a panel discussion type setup. So today I'm really excited about this topic. It's something obviously being based in Nashville, which is uh, germane to everybody. And it's been getting a lot of uh, headline uh, coverage recently in the Times. There was an article in the, in the Wall Street Journal and Rolling Stone. And we've got the experts here to help us work through this. So with that, I will um, pass it off and we'll go around the room and do introductions. And then we'll get into some of the topics themselves. John, maybe you could start with a little bit of background on yourself and the firm. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is John Osier, and I'm the executive vice president at Reservoir, which is one of the world's largest music companies based in New York with offices in L.A., Nashville, London, Toronto and Abu Dhabi. I'm also a former hit songwriter. So I'm going to approach today from both the buyer and seller side. Perfect. Paul, you're uh, you're up next. Great. Yeah, my name is Paul Steele. Happy to be here. I'm executive partner at Triple Eight Management, which is an artist management company that represents about 20 artists. I'm also principal at Good Time Entertainment, which is a brokerage company in the IP space and owner of about 20,000 copyrights. For the context of this panel, I'm a broker of music IP. 
I've been involved in about $300 million catalog sales in the last three years. Andy, my, you're up. My turn, I'm guessing. Thanks, guys. Um, Andy Motes, Executive Vice President of Pinnacle Bank, headquartered here in Nashville, and I run our music, sports, and entertainment group, uh, which covers a lot of a lot of things, but maybe most importantly to us, intellectual property finance. So we're the senior lender on quite a few of these transactions on the master and publishing side, volume-wise, probably north of a billion dollars in the last six or eight quarters alone. So very, very active in the space. And as a housekeeping matter, if if anybody in the audience has a specific question or wants to dive into a subject matter a little bit more in depth, use the Q&A button or the chat button and I'll make sure to direct them. I would ask that you only ask the difficult questions to John. I think that would be for the best. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. He, he does receive them the best. He's got all the records on the wall. So you, you obviously the expert here. Um, yeah, that's right. So, you know, Bob Dylan selling his catalog for 300 million, Paul Simon, you know, in the same ballpark word on the street is Dolly Parton is also considering doing something maybe to frame this conversation. What is this as an asset class? I mean, publishing the masters, the royalty income, how do they all work together and maybe help us define some of these terms for folks that aren't in the music industry themselves? You want me to take that? John, that's you, man. John, that's a layup, baby. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I think really in the last two to three years, people have really seen copyrights, whether it be on the publishing side, which is the lyric and music, versus the masters, which is the sound recording, um, as well as royalty income participation, which looks like producer royalties, artist royalties. Um, I think it's really become known as an asset class. I mean, it's uncorrelated to the markets interest rates go up and down, bond rates go up and down. And if somebody told me we would get into a pandemic and the value of a song and the value of copyright would rise, I wouldn't have believed you, but here we are. I think in the last month alone, there's probably been two and a half billion dollars worth of private equity come into the space. And that's just ones that we know about. Andy, you probably have more insight into that, but it's a, that's a lot of what we're doing at Reservoirs. We're buying catalogs because they're royalty generating, it's probably as predictable or more predictable than real estate, but it's a complicated space. And I think people are finally starting to learn and understand music as an asset class. So, well, and and to, well, Andy, we're going to say something. Yeah. I mean, I I just had John hit on a keyword uncorrelated there. So the, the revenues in this space held up very well in 2008, 9, 10, And in the pandemic, we think of the music industry as having been a direct hit from the pandemic, but really the royalty side of the business held up if if not grew during that time. So uncorrelated, largely uncorrelated. I think the one thing it it may ultimately be correlated to is, is a high interest rate environment, but we're not in a high interest rate environment today. And I would just add, when, when you hear the term masters, think label, think artist. When you hear the term publisher, think songwriter. And, and really masters didn't have a whole lot of value until uh, until streaming. It used to be a sales business, and now we monetize off of the consumption of music. And so it created an annuity, which publishing had always benefited from, particularly due to, uh, to terrestrial radio. So publishing has been around for some time as an asset class. Masters is, is a, kind of the new kid on the block, but very popular right now. And, and just to add some context there from an investment perspective, I like to break it into active versus passive. You know, a guy like John Reservoir, he's going to know what to do with an active asset. Active would be, I can make this make more money. I can work this song or work this copyright by finding more opportunity for it. 
And I'm going to have a staff that is going to pursue that opportunity and put infrastructure around owning these assets versus a passive asset, which would just be, you know, performing rights, royalty, participation, PRO type stuff uh, where you're, you know, if you're a family office or high net worth individual who wants to dabble in the space and you don't, you're not looking to understand the ins and outs of the music business and monetization and what all that means and how to do that, you know, a pass fast is just when you're changing the, the uh, payee address uh, and you're collecting a check. So that's, that's a, another differentiator between these. Yeah, Paul, that's a really good point. Um, you know, at Reservoir, we're doing both active and passive deals. We like both of them. Our margins on passive are better because there's no overhead involved with it. We like the active side of things because that's where we're a true publisher. I mean, publishing is a verb. We're out creating opportunities for our songwriters. And a lot of these catalogs that we're buying include unexploited songs. So at Reservoir, we have a staff of 12 that do nothing but pitch songs to other artists to try to get other cuts. Samples and interpolations going into new songs has been a big thing um, in just about every format. We also have 12 people at Reservoir that do nothing but pitch for film, TV, advertising, and games. So sync is a big uptick for us. So if you're able to buy an active catalog and add value to it, it just juices the returns. John, are you seeing a lot of unexploited or underexploited catalogs that you're looking at right now? Things with upside opportunity, be it admin, sync, et cetera? Yeah, definitely in Nashville. Um, I think unexploited catalogs, a lot of companies based out of New York, even at Reservoir, they didn't understand why would you want to acquire songs that have never been exploited. In Nashville, we're pretty unique. I had a song just recently land on Carrie Underwood's Christmas album that was 20 years old. So that was in a catalog that I'm sitting around. Um, Brett James rewrote it. We ended up getting credit on it. So I've seen songs 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old get exploited. And that's pretty specific to Nashville. But once again, that's the beauty of buying catalog and unexploited songs. Well, and, and, and to touch on that too, on the master side, I mean, a lot of the catalogs that I go after are exclusively unexploited. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of music from the 70s and 80s that never really got digitized when these labels went bankrupt you know, that, that, that weren't keeping up with technology or the costs were too high to press or whatever. I mean, there's a ton of music out there that you, you can acquire if you dig really deep, especially with an older generation that's looking to pass on their catalog on both the master and the publishing side that has just been sitting in a, a vault for 20, 30 years that was released physically, but never, never uh, made it into the digital upstream. So it's, it's a fun little hunt if, if, if you're willing to roll your sleeves up. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Paul. I think people are wondering why the boom in catalog sales. And I think it really has to do with three or four things. One, low interest rates, which Andy touched on. Two, the pandemic with artists not touring as much. A lot of them needed to, to cash in and bring money in the, ta- in the door. So with no touring, I think that added to it as well as uh, capital gains potentially changing. I think a lot of people towards the end of last year were trying to close before December 31st. December was a crazy year for us at Reservoir. So all of that has kind of created a perfect storm. Um, And I think also the recognition of songs and masters as an asset class has kind of all contributed to it. And I think at Reservoir alone, our deal flow right now is probably well over a billion dollars, which is just crazy. I mean, I'm seeing four to five catalogs a week come in. Well, I think too, something that I've tried to make the argument for from an artist perspective is this is the first time ever that 
uh, an artist can look at something that has an exit strategy. You know, typically they're, they're doing a, a go forward deal at a three to four X or something of that nature. And, and, you know, this is really the first time the valuations have made it a case to say you're running a business and you can exit from part of that business. You can, you, you, you know, this exists, this idea exists in every single business with the exception of music on the creative side. And, and now for the first time ever, it does. And so I think that's, there's been some power handed over to the artist or the writer and they haven't felt that power before. And it's, it's a really invigorating thing, but most of the clients that I've represented that have done a sale, they double down the minute they get the check instead of like, you know, going to some Island and drinking a pina colada there, they, they want to get in the studio right away. They want to write right away. And, you know, I just think it, it's, it's really shifted a lot of the thought process of, of the who, what, why am I doing this? And certainly, you know, capital gains is a big deal. I mean, the tax rates uh, have never been this low in the history of modern America. So they're certainly not going to go lower and you can do a very quick Google news search to see that they're probably going to go higher. And so I think a lot of people on the artist sales side and writer sales side are, are, are trying to race against that clock. Yeah. I would add in terms of activity from an investor's perspective, John was right on, but you also have, of course, streaming driving a lot of growth. Historically, publishing grew maybe, John, 2% a year, something like that. All right. Uh, and, and we're seeing growth rates significantly above that right now. Um, also seeing a lot of rest of world monetization. So new markets that otherwise were unable to be monetized that we're seeing some material income from. New technologies that we can monetize. Think like Peloton as an example, using music. TikTok. Um, TikTok, right. So huge opportunities in spaces like that. And even, you know, technology that helps with the cost of administration. And so these things trade off of multiples of revenue. And historically, you might have had a large staff to administer that stream of income. And these days, you can do that for maybe, you know, a 10% fee using a third party that, that relies heavily on technology to, to help collect all of that income. So cost of admin, new technologies, rest of world monetization, uh, streaming itself, driving a lot of growth right now. Yeah, and I, I think, sorry, John, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and on top of that, legislative issues. I mean, rates continue to get better. It's a constant fight. Luckily, we've got some great trade associations within the business and an uh, MPA and the RIAA that are out there fighting for better rates. So I think seeing last year an uptick from, a, what, a 44% uptick from the CRB ruling, which is being contested now, but there's a lot of legislative issues going on that are favorable for us. Well, you know, on that note, I mean, wasn't there just a $454 million uh, collection of the Music Modernization Act? You know, so I, I think there, there is, Congress has kind of always been the dictator of how this art is valued, which is always funny. And the Music Modernization Act is a big deal. I mean, it kind of guarantees that publishing is going to be worth more for the next five years minimum. And, and I think just to touch on global, I think it's hard in America to realize that Spotify isn't everywhere and that Apple music isn't everywhere. I think Spotify just went into India a year ago. It's not, there's nothing in China, really. They have their own stuff uh, that a lot of stuff isn't even distributed under. And, and, and Russia, I think just opened up a few months ago. And so I think Emerging markets is a big deal. I think when I hear emerging markets, I think small countries, but these are huge countries with billions of people that are just now onboarding streaming. And it took a few years for that to really click 
in America. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but when Spotify first came to America, every label and publisher hated it. They're like, this is going to kill the music business. And we technology goes to the music business to mess it up and see what, if their tech works. And then they fix the legal stuff at the end. And the music business has gone kicking and screaming through that process every decade. And the process of consumption changes every 10 to 15 years. iTunes ain't that old, but it's irrelevant. And so Spotify, there were three years there where, where people were windowing and not putting up on Spotify in real time. And there was just, there's always this short sightedness to the tech. Oh, it's just going to mess our stuff up. And I think finally we're leaning in with blockchain and metadata and fingerprinting to Andy's point on how easy it is to collect and find your money now uh, and running forward towards uh, the technology. I mean, Fleetwood Mac is a new band of two generations of people just because of that TikTok video with Dogface on uh, Dreamers. It that's crazy. You know, they're the number one record for like five weeks, and so it's a really exciting time. I think on any side of the fence you're on, whether you're a seller or a buyer, an artist who's who's holding or a label or a publisher, it's it's a it's just a really fun time to be in this environment because I think we've all been doing it long enough to where. Everyone said the music business was dead. And it was the cash cow of Sony in the 90s, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then everyone was public and then went private again. Now they're, and now they're going public again. It's, it's, a, it's just a fun time to be in the space. You guys are the easiest panel I've ever worked with. So <laughs> try to ask one more question in the, another 15 minutes will pass by. But I want to get into some of the economics here. You know, I think John alluded to this, but even though it's getting press coverage today, this, this is, and Andy, Andy mentioned it, a space that's been around for a long time. So how does valuation work here? And what are kind of the yield metrics or, or the economic indicators that people use when they're looking at, you know, selling or purchasing a catalog? I mean, typically what we do is take a three-year average. I mean, there's a huge amount of data from a ton of different sources, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, labels. I mean, so you're getting tons of different sources from where royalties come. Um, and we take a three-year average and essentially we, we at Reservoir work backwards. We look more at return on investment. People like to talk about multiples because it's a little bit easier to, to digest. And it depends on the asset. I mean, for me, as when I was a country songwriter, it's taking an average of 40 weeks for a song to peak at number one. So obviously about nine months later, those royalties come in and they're going to pay at a peak and then they're going to decay really quickly in the country market. I mean, we've even seen some big hit country songs decay 90, 95% year over year. So once they level out is where we're really looking to try to find that sweet spot. And when the industry started growing, you started seeing an uptick in that. Um, so that's basically 30,000 foot view. And as you want to get into yields, Andy and Paul are probably better. You're, you're probably better well-versed than me and that. Yeah. So in terms of return on investment, you actually kind of have to back up and, and look at the various players on the equity side in this space. And so it was a very mom and pop business 10 years ago. And then you, you started to see early fund structures and private equity finding its way into the business. Today, every major private equity player is is either in or announcing that they will be in in terms of investment in music IP. We started seeing a handful of years ago pension funds come in in a big way, so that further lowered cost of capital. And now we're seeing a handful of businesses trade publicly, at least on the London exchange, in theory, further reducing cost of capital. And so ROI, the lower cost of capital gets, uh, the more someone's willing to pay for a catalog. And the more someone's willing to pay for a catalog, the more sellers there are. Right now, I'm probably taking 
a billion dollars worth of new equity calls a week. So every week there are two or three institutional investors that all have several, several hundred million, if not a billion plus in equity they want to put in this space. So a lot of people flooding into the space. In terms of ultimately how we value these things, John's right. We talk about multiples of NPS or net publisher share, really, really revenue. Um, but there's a handful of things that go into it. The quality of the catalog, obviously, how much you think uh, that stream of income may grow. And then, you know, when you're going to exit and will there be any exit multiple arbitrage when you when you do? So if you're buying something for a 12, do you think you'll sell it for a 14? Do you think that'll happen in three years, five years? Or uh, is this increasingly more of kind of an evergreen uh, asset class? And so there's a lot that goes into it. Do you know, want to mention there's still an art component to this. You, you really have to step back and say, do I really think that song or those songs will be popular 20 years from now? Will people still be listening to these? You know, especially the newer stuff. Will it be tomorrow's evergreen? And it's hard to say. I think there's a lot of people investing in things that they think will last forever. And maybe they're not stepping back and saying, you know, is that really a song I'm going to care about two decades from now? Yeah, and Andy, that's a really good point. I mean, I think people forget this is very much an emotional transaction. I mean, if these are songs that a lot of people, it's their heart and soul. I mean, when I sold my catalog, it's an emotional thing because those songs, we have a saying in the business, a hit song changes everything. If you have financial problems, marital problems, touring problems, whatever it is, a hit song in three minutes can, can change that. Um, and for us at Reservoir, it's we have a creative team that is able to put a really good perspective on it. And I think we're able to identify what songs have lasting power, what songs will turn into evergreens versus a drop in the pan. And it takes somebody being in the business and knowing those songs to be able to predict what those are. So once again, being an active publisher, I think gives us an advantage versus some of the other fun structures. Well, I think too, it's important to remind everybody that this is a really young space. The music industry is just now an industry. I mean, before the private equity money came in and before Spotify, I mean, the, the entire music, the entire entertainment business contributed less than 1% of the GDP to America. Textiles is an industry, you know, like manufacturing is an industry. We're monetizing art that's been free for thousands of years. Okay. This is less than a hundred years old. And because of where things are at with technology, it's finally becoming a real industry where outside money is coming in and there's all this growth and that's wonderful. And I think it'll sustain that flip side of that though, is because it's so young, it's always made more money on a 10 year curve. So there's been ups and downs certainly as technology has messed with it. Um, and every time there was a decry, but if you look at a 10 year arc on IP, generally speaking, as a whole in the industry, it has made more money. So the trick is finding the right IP to Andy's point that will sustain that time. And, and, you know, I've, I've a lot of confidence that if you find it, it's a great investment. Um, but there's plenty of people that are just buying stuff that's for sale. So there, there is an art form to value it. And it's, and, 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 and it's also a reminder that you, you are buying art. This is really important to people. So, you know, we try to be a good steward of that. It's really not that indifferent in a lot of ways to commercial real estate, which Brian, I know is kind of your world, but you've got, you know, a Walgreens ground lease, 30 year ground lease, 50 year ground lease on corner of Main and Main, or you've got a, a mom and pop Chinese restaurant on a month to month lease. You're going to pay more for one stream of income than you are for the other. We have debt service coverage. We have loan to values. It's really similar in a lot of ways. I think more uncorrelated to the greater macroeconomic environment. But if you want to liken it structure wise to something, CRE is not that indifferent. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a lot of the loans that I've seen are structured similarly. And I, I think too, what I, what I like to say is all art is some kind of stock. Some of this stuff is a penny stock. You know, John's buying plenty of penny stocks of unsupported assets and he can turn them into a blue chip if, if he finds the right hit, find the right cut on that. Uh, other stuff is blue chip, you know, catalog from the seven, like Dolly Parton. Everything that makes the news is, is a blue chip stock. And there's a lot of stuff in between with, with different caps. So it's, it's, you certainly can apply plenty of normal business to the art if you know yeah, it. Paul, Paul, that's a really good point. I, mean, I think a lot of our strategy at Reservoir is the blue chip. I mean, the evergreens, the older, the better, because the more predictable, the more data you have on that. And I would say 85 to 90% of our business investments come from those blue chip evergreen catalogs, but the other 10, 15% are what we call futures deals to where we're signing songwriters at say a $30,000 per year recoupable advance, knowing that they're going to create 12 songs over the next year. And while those are much more risky, if you know what you're doing and you can identify talent, you can turn a $30,000 futures deal into a million dollar catalog. It may take five to seven years. And I'm lucky to work for a patient family office that knows that, but that's, that's one thing that's once again, benefit to being creative in the business to identifying that talent and taking these futures deals and taking that higher risk, knowing that we can add value and turn it into a seven-figure catalog. Yeah, and John, that's kind of your company's model. I get the benefit of seeing lots of companies, and there's lots of ways to be successful in the space. You deal mostly in blue chips. I've got businesses that you know, have bought Celtic marching band music or wellness music, Broadway cast recordings, a lot of left-of-center stuff that actually can can be really stable as well in, in trades at lower multiples, film and TV composers. So you hear about the Bob Dylans of the world, but sometimes equally interesting case for, for some of these left of center assets. Yeah. And I, mean, I think that goes to the point of the, each buyer is looking for something different. You know, that's the beauty of this art is you have all of these different genres of music and all these different spaces and there's different monetization models for what that music is. And I think that's one of the reasons there are so many buyers, you know, I, I, I talked about 60 different folks regularly that are buying stuff. And there's probably, I probably get a call every other day, somebody who wants to get into the market and, and, and those, those pan out sometimes and sometimes they don't, but everyone's looking for something a little different. And I think that's, what's fun about it is it's, it's a pretty big sand block, sandbox and everybody can kind of play, play in it. Um, yeah, so Paul, Paul, I know you said you have probably 60 buyers that you go to when you're brokering deals. I mean, I've talked to other brokers in town, which there aren't a lot of, by the way, um, that has maybe 70, 75, and with $2.5 billion coming into the business at the minimum over the last month, more than that, Andy says. People say it's so competitive, how do you get deals? And it's uh, that's the one thing that we really focus on at Reservoir is prioritizing. It's figuring out what we really want to go after, what complements assets that we already have in our catalog uh, to make it one cohesive asset. Um, so we spend a lot of time being really particular about what we go after, but there's enough deals to go around for everybody. Yes. And everybody has their own strategy, and so there's plenty to go around. Everybody's pipeline is full despite all of that equity coming in the space. Very true. Well, Andy, there's a lot of unsold art out there. Andy, I'm really curious, you know, like you mentioned, I'm a real estate person and the, one of the beauties of commercial real estate is the ability to, you know, get loans against it and, and provide credit. What does that look like from your standpoint? Are these 
Are these like, what's the leverage ratios that you look for? What are the recourse options available? And is it now at a point where there's an ecosystem where there are other kind of options beyond regional lenders are the, are the securitized debt markets and the secondary markets involved in these types of transactions? Yeah, no, great question. So it's it's essentially 50% senior debt, 50% equity. There's there's a lot more that goes into it than that, but think of 50% LTV. There's limitations on debt to NPS or debt to revenue effectively. So if someone's going to pay a 20 multiple for an asset, they're going to have to put more equity in than someone that might be paying a 10. So those are really the two most important components, LTV. And there's there's a handful of, of really great valuation providers out there. So we get an appraisal just like you might on the CRE side. In terms of recourse, these are generally non-recourse, but they're also generally larger transactions. So for these two uh, to be non-recourse and to reduce risk, it has to be a diversified catalog and therefore it has to be relatively sizable. We'll do a handful of single artist transactions, but they're really iconic artists, again, to kind of reduce that risk. But otherwise, you know, our entry point is probably a $20, $25 million loan. And these are facilities that we may lead up to three, four, five hundred million dollars. So the smaller ones are not non-recourse. You can you can do some smaller catalog loans, but they generally do have recourse. Uh, in terms of other products, yes, securitizations are kind of back and active in this space. Uh, we're on the very early side of that. So as I mentioned, you've got private equity turning pension fund, turning public markets, and now you have securitization market being a bit active. There are two deals I'm aware of in the last, call it six months, that have utilized that and more that are considering it. Term loan Bs is an example. Sometimes institutional investors like to invest in term loan Bs. There's, there's a good option to do that. I can even do that with some of the, the majors, as we call them, your Warner's, Universal, Sony. Well, I'm uh, sorry, what's a, what's a term loan B? Uh, term loan B would be like a senior debt, but um, with a little looser terms than a traditional bank might typically invest in. And so uh, it attracts more institutional investors, pretty good rates, returns, usually seven-year facilities, limited amortization, that sort of a thing. So for, for bigger clients, we're seeing kind of an active term loan B market. And again, securitizations, lots of people thinking about that right now. Yeah. And to piggyback on that a little bit, I see a lot of the under 10 million stuff on the bank side. And it seems like, you know, personal guarantee will get it done and also recourse on, you know, they own the copyright. If you, if you fail, they'll, they'll get a, you know, a, a copyright protection on that. And I think, I'm thinking I'm, we're about to take $150 million ABS to market next week. So, so there's certainly that it feels like the big short in a way, like the, the references there on the, um, the there, there's a lot of packaging going on to sell in the, and that marketplace. So that's kind of fascinating to see happen. That's, that's a relatively new thing. In terms of kind of explaining the 50% leverage versus call it CRE, that might be 70 or 80, cash flow and collateral are so tightly tied together here that if your cash flow goes down, the value of your catalog goes down. And if it continues to go down, the multiple goes down as well. So if you have a million dollars in NPS at a 10X and then it goes 900 and 800, it's not 800 at a 10X, now it's 800 at an 8X. And before you know it, you're kind of approaching that 50% mark. So we're the lowest cost of capital, therefore the lowest risk, but we play a role in, in the capital stack for sure. And you keep these on your balance sheet or do you participate in syndications? 
Uh, fascinated by this. Uh, sure. No, we'll, we'll lead, you know, big single bank deals. We'll participate with the other banks in this market that do this. We'll lead facilities that the other banks in the market participate in. There's an ecosystem. I'd say there's, you know, five give or take banks that really, really are good at this. And we're all super close and, and, and partner together. And so, you know, you put all five of us together, we all do $50 million. You have a $250 million facility. You kind of match that with $250, $300 million in equity. And, you, you know, we're important not only for cost of capital, but access to capital. You can essentially uh, double um, what you're able to purchase as compared to the capital that you raise. Well, and a lot of times, Andy, aren't you guys doing a every 12 to 24 month revaluation of the catalog to ensure that the loan to value matches? Yep. Uh, the bigger ones are annual valuations. Sometimes they're every 24 months. And then if there's a big transaction that happens between that annual valuation, it might also get what we call an individual valuation. So you may value a $300 million portfolio every 12 months, but if they're going to buy a $75 million asset somewhere kind of between that time period, you want to make sure that it's being purchased at an appropriate price. And so the valuations are a big part of this. Uh, I, I would say banks probably play one of the most important quiet roles here because they're the ones that, you know, they're fine. And in the same way you'd get an appraisal on your commercial property for the loan, you know, there's a little bit more because these deals are so big. There's a lot of decisions that are made off the valuation that the bank gets uh, before they green light something. So I'd say the banks are quite a bit more active than talked about. That's never in the press, uh, but they, they are a true form partner and really do help set price here. Someone can say, I want X, but if the loan comes back at Y, you know, you got to get creative. They're also a great source of deal flow, uh, just in terms of relationships. Um, there's a big iconic catalog we're working on right now. That was an introduction from one of our banking partners. So they're very much partners, very much partners. So, so John, maybe you can start here. I think for a lot of us, when we think music industry, we think the big names are like Sony, et cetera. But how do, how do you differentiate yourselves within this marketplace and, and how do different groups provide more value? Obviously it goes down to the network, et cetera. But when people are thinking about investing or learning more about the space, how do you, how do you identify the real players versus the folks that are just maybe, you know, amateurs, et cetera? Really good question. Um, and Andy, you can probably chime in here too, but I would say from the independent space, I would say Reservoir, Round Hill, Primary Wave, Hypnosis, Downtown, probably the main players. Now you're starting to see a lot of the majors get into the space, which is very new. Um, I think Warner Chapel has set something up with a fund called Tempo. Looks like Sony's doing the same thing. Universal, obviously, with their IPO looming, they're about to have a huge amount of cash to go acquire and grow. Um, and each one has a really different strategy. Primary Wave seems to live in the iconic brand naming rights space. Reservoir, we're predominantly, from the very beginning, an R&B pop publisher. Uh, when we started the Nashville office, we obviously diversified more into country, but we've got a lot of pop R&B hip hop records coming out of Nashville too. And so it really boils down to strategy. I think Roundhill's been really successful in the country space. So it's really determining the appetite each company has and how big their creative team, what's their appetite for futures deals. Um, so it just really depends. Well, I think the piggyback on that, you know, Brian, what's interesting here, what Sean hinted to, the independents are who have led this space. I mean, this asset class would not exist without Reservoir, Round Hill, 
primary wave and hypnosis. They, they are really the ones that decided, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to raise money. We're going to go buy a bunch of stuff and we're going to make this make sense. Uh, because buying catalogs is not a new idea. That's since copyright law has been established in the seventies, you could sell your catalog for three to five X. It's not a new thing. Um, they were just called different things, futures deals, you know, you, and, and you take the copyright and there's no reversion, blah, blah, blah. But this whole concept of an asset class, the majors were very slow to that. I mean, there it's maybe an 18, 18 month conversation, six months for some of the others. So that's what's really been fascinating is, is, you know, the independent guys are the ones that, that went and got a whole bunch of money and raised it and put their butts on the line to, to make this thing make sense. And now you have all the private equity money coming in, family offices calling, high net worth individuals curious. Um, so we owe great debt to folks like John. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll add those institutional players are now kind of buying directly. Um, they have been in the news and it, it, they're, they're smart. They've done their homework. Many of them have been watching this for years and, They'll put these assets inside of uh, alternative asset funds. And for all you know, Brian, you're already invested in one. So uh, you're seeing, again, direct purchase from some of the major institutional players now. Yeah, you got PIMCO, KKR, Tencent, TPG. I mean, everybody is doing something now. Yeah. So along those lines, it, it seems like this asset class is becoming more sophisticated. You guys have mentioned multiple times institutional equity, private equity, large family offices, pension plans, et cetera. Given where the where the overall public markets are, I mean, I'm asking you to kind of read tea leaves here, but are you expecting more public offerings or or potential other ways to you know broaden this these opportunities out and and to Andy's point earlier, kind of reduce that cost of capital ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen several successful SPACs here in the last several weeks. There's obviously rumors out there about reservoir, which I cannot comment on, but I know. <laughs> Edgar Bronfman had one, Neil Jacobson won. I think between those two, that's probably $500 million. So I think you're going to see a lot more of it. Roundhill's done it successfully. Hypnosis has done it successfully. And so once again, it's all about your cost of capital. And people can say some of these companies are blowing their brains out paying 20 X's, but we don't know what their cost of capital is. So what may seem like a crazy deal for one company may make sense for another company. So those are all things to think about. And a lot of it that differentiates us from other intellectual properties, a lot of these deals are life copyright deals. I mean, one of the sister companies of Reservoir is a company called DRI Capital out of Toronto that invests in pharmaceuticals and medical devices, which is a royalty business, but that's on a seven-year term. When you're talking about some of these copyrights here, particularly in the country space, it's life of copyright. So those are things to think about too. You just made me think about that, Paul, when you brought up reversions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's interesting about it. You know, everyone, they're, they're doing their valuations on, you know, the data set that they have. And I always, I always get tickled when people say, I can't pay more than this. It's like, well, you're giving me an offer on the resting rate of revenue that you've decided the K will match. And this is a life of copyright sale. You can do better, you know, if it, if it doesn't feel fair. And so I think we always have really spirited conversations about that because it really is, it would be, it's very hard to lose money on, on a 50 year revenue stream uh you got you got to make a lot of really poor decisions in my opinion to do that so yeah. i'll tell you too something interesting I, i'll talk to the bank examiners from uh now and now and again about if you told me a real estate developer was going to pass away in six months or end up in rehab i probably wouldn't make that loan it only helps these catalogs quite honestly and andy that's an incredible point i mean you've got to understand 
who the seller is. I mean, I've seen lots of these catalog deals that are lumped into futures deals. So to put it 30,000 foot view, you're buying a catalog of existing revenue generating copyrights, and then you're signing this writer for future works over, call it a three-year term. And a lot of what, if you don't know the person that's selling, I mean, if I just got a $30 million check, you'd probably never see me again. So a lot of these companies are getting hosed on the future piece of this deal. So it really, you have to be in it and know what you're buying and who you're buying it from. Because once again, it's art and you're dealing with some very interesting personalities. So to be in it, I mean, it's such a relationship business. The more you know about the person and um, what their plans are, how many kids do they have? Where are they in their life? All things that you got to think about when buying these assets. Well, the, the, the only thing I would say there is the, with the futures thing, unless you're getting a whole lot of unexploited with it, right? I mean, you, you, you would be able to probably find opportunity there, even if they did kind of say peace out. Yeah. But that's a good point. Or I'm dealing with one right now where we're pretty sure when this person sells and dies, they're going to get sued by their family. That's another thing. Like you really got to know the semantics about what is, what is your liability outside of just the person? I think that's a great point, John. I didn't think. Yeah. A lot of the state planning goes into that, especially when you're looking at some of these legacy catalogs, even though we, I dealt with a songwriter in town named Tony Martin, who's one of the smartest songwriters in town. He's thinking about that. He said that he would be willing to sell everything, his writer share, his publishing, because he doesn't want his kids to have to fight over it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Which is a very valid point. Get the money now. Give it, you know, yeah. Do a Google search. See how many families have sued each other on this stuff. Yeah. So along those lines, you know, our network and most of the folks I think who are listening or, you know, potentially would be checking this out down the road are high net worth individuals and families. What are some best practices or, you know, I'm not looking for, for investing advice per se, but if somebody wanted to dip their toe in the water and enter the space and look for investing, what are the options available to them? Well, there's a few, there's a few auction sites that exist. You could, Search right now, buy copyright, and you would get three or four returns to do that on a on a auction space. You can know a broker, someone like me, or there's there's a handful of us. And and if you if you have a great banker, you know, uh, to Andy's point, banks are very very in on this. There's a lot of funds going around right now where you can, you know, give fifty to two hundred grand or whatever uh, into a a fund being raised to purchase IP. I mean, I get, I get one of those emails every other week. So I I think it's easier now than ever to be in the space, but the diligence to make sense of on if that is the right partner for you, I think is a whole nother bag of tricks. I think a lot of people are are very curious and they're just buying stuff without really knowing what they're buying or why they're buying it. They just want to be in the space. So I, I think there's a little bit more nuance to that. I don't have a great answer for that. Call me, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you've got you've got the publicly traded companies now, a handful of them, and the same way, you know, all of us probably have institutional investors calling every week. We also have companies looking to to raise funds, fifty million, hundred million, sometimes more, and we'll partner those together if, if we believe in the model. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so call the people on this panel, <laughs> make sure that you know. You're not doing something uh, before you sign the paperwork, which is why I love the fact that you're all local and, and people that, I, that I've known, that I think absolutely trustworthy. So what is the next iteration here? I mean, I, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper on Paul's comment he made earlier where technology streaming, that was considered the death knell of the music industry, you know, 20 years ago. But now it seems like from listening to you all, 
there's more energy and excitement in the space now than there has been in a long time. What do you think that the next evolution or iteration of the space looks like from an investment standpoint? I mean, I don't think streaming's going anywhere anytime soon, but they probably said that about the MP3 or the CD or the cassette or the DAT or analog. Um, so there will be a disruptor, but right now streaming seems to be growing and especially as it's getting into these emerging markets, I think streaming is going to continue to grow. And if you look at any of the Goldman Sachs reports or any industry reports, they show extreme growth over the next five to 10 years. I think in terms of, I think you're going to see a lot of more royalty income participation deals. I think you're going to see a lot of master's deals, which have typically traded at lower multiples. Um, but there just aren't a lot of master deals because a lot of them are owned by the, the majors. Majors are smart enough to not really let them walk out the door. But I think you're going to see a lot of that, especially as independent artists. It's so easy to release music now. I mean, Paul's company does an amazing job releasing music independently, and there are some gold mines sitting there. So that's my two cents on it. Yeah, I think that, that that's all true. I, th I think the best thing I would say is don't, there's several companies that are only buying streaming rights that were, were they, they're betting the whole farm on streamings forever. And my advice would be don't participate in those because there's a lot of different, there's 17 different royalty streams really. And if you're, if you're wholly owning the copyright master publish publisher share, uh, you, you have a lot of different things to bet on no matter what happens technologically you're still going to benefit from the lift of whatever that tech brings us. You know, nobody's got a crystal ball, so we can't say what that technology is going to be, but you know, Elon Musk is going to make it so we can blink and, and stream in real time. And just think of a song, you know, there's going to be a royalty to that that we're going to kick out through cryptocurrency. I don't know, but if you own the song and you own what's going on, you know, NFT, same thing. Like there, there's just a lot of different ways to monetize this art that didn't exist. And every single time new tech comes in, it's a new lever in monetization. So last thing you want to do is you want to bet the farm on one specific type of monetization effort. And so I would advise against the handful of companies that are, are, are streaming only or interactive royalty or non-interactive royalty only type funds. If you're going to buy something, really buy it, buy it wholly. Uh, so that no matter what happens, you are a, you know, you're, you don't have that liability. Uh, Paul, I, th I think I generally agree with you. I'd add entertainment attorneys play a critical role here. And some of those companies, it looks like they're just buying streaming, but they're actually buying everything, but say physical sync and download. And it future proofs it a little bit so that as totally the next streaming comes along and they actually get the benefit in that. So, but that's, that's an area. Those are things you wouldn't know without a good attorney. And if you don't structure properly, it can be very dangerous. The, the only thing I'll say to that, you're hundred percent right. For sure. Even in a pandemic last year, we had three months of studios being up and we still did $1.5 million in sync for our management clients. So still, there's a lot of money to make, I mean, I own Magnolia Record Club. We do a million dollars in vinyl only sales a year. Yeah. So I just don't like leaving money on the table. And a lot of that stuff isn't included in the valuation. You know, when people are running valuation, they're really only looking at streaming revenue. They, they, they heavily discount sync, they heavily discount physical. So it, it's just kind of a cherry on top. If you can make that make sense, uh, you, and if you can, if you can have, if you can have a way to monetize that and pursue those opportunities, you can get a nice lift on the catalog value. And yeah, and I think the ownership of that asset has value compared to just 
you know, a passive royalty stream for sure. So totally agree there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot in most of our valuations, we don't even include sync, which leaves us a huge room for growth. And I think it's worth saying too, really the golden egg and all of this is owning big chunks of copyrights and owning the master. So if there's an opportunity to own the publishing and a master on something, it comes into what we call a one-stop shop. So from a licensing standpoint, it's uh, it's a piece of cake because a lot of turnaround on film, TV, advertising, gaming, they need a license done in the next two hours. And if you own all of the IP, it's a licensing heaven. So that's really the golden egg and things that we try to find where I, wherever I can circle the wagons, so to speak, and pick up bigger chunks of the copyright or by the copyright and the master. That's really where the golden egg is. Yeah, it, it seems like. I guess a couple things, and I'm not even sure if this is a question, but it, at least in my space, and I'm hearing the same thing from you all, I think the future for, you know, on the investment side is fractional ownership, democratization of access to these alternatives, digitization, secondary market liquidity, which sounds like all things that, that your industry is, is wrestling with today. And what's been really fascinating to me to watch as a total amateur outsider is kind of the social media enabling some of these artists and content creators to own their own brand, right? I mean, I think we've heard about, you know, what Prince tried to do, what Taylor Swift was able to do because they see that the levers they can pull and the monetization efforts moving forward is just so, so much more powerful without those friction costs associated with dealing with these intermediaries. Again, I don't know if that's a question or if you guys want to run with that, but that, that's just kind of the observation I, I, I've made. Yeah, I mean, I'll tackle it from a seller standpoint. I was approached by someone who wanted to acquire my co-publishing on two of my really two hits, two number ones. That had decayed, and it was steady as could be and actually growing. And I got, let's call it a team between a 15 and 20X. And for me, it's, can I take that money off the table? Instead of playing regular income, I pay capital gains, and can I invest that somewhere and make more money? So that's what I was thinking um, coming into it. So that, those are things that all sellers are thinking about. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I think that's uh, what's the cost of freedom. You know I mean? I think that's, that, that, that's the outlier of, Hey, if I take this money on the table, what, what, what does that mean for me? What, what relief does that give me? I think, it, it, I think John, you said this is highly emotional uh, earlier. It's, it's, this is very emotional to the artist or writer or whoever it's less emotional to a label to get an investment or a publisher who's selling as a company. But to, if, if, if a writer or artist is selling their stuff, the, the, very rarely is it just the semantics of the math that makes them make that decision. It's, it's just, who's the partner? What are they going to do with it? Are they going to be good to it? And does this give me the freedom I want uh, to accomplish sex and why? I will say, and there's a lot of media coverage on artists wanting to own their own masters and, feel like they've gotten screwed over. I will say without the record company, without the publishing companies, they're probably not going to be a position they are. I mean, there's a lot of power in doing a deal with a label, just from a marketing standpoint, from being able to work terrestrial radio, from a publicity promotion, these record companies and publishing companies are adding a ton of value and can take an independent artist from here to there. So it's, you really got to kind of read between the lines of what the narrative is out there. Yeah. So we're, we're bumping up against the hour mark and I want to be mindful of everyone's time, but there is a question here to the, to the panelists from Steve asking about how retail investors can kind of enter the space. And then ultimately for these private equity groups, I think oftentimes they would be high net worth individuals or families are coming through a fund model, kind of that private equity style. What is the ultimate liquidity option for them given the ecosystem today? 
that can cover the private equity exit. You know, Roundhill Fund One effectively just went public on the London Stock Exchange. So you see that. That can certainly happen. Securitizations we talked about, uh, a little more kind of permanent way to recapitalize. And then a lot of sales, quite honestly. So it depends on the size of it. But you're definitely seeing consolidation and some value in, in getting larger. So public sell, securitization, maybe something else in between. I may pose another question, Andy, for companies like Reservoir and Concord and Roundhill, they get so big. I mean, who's, who's going to buy those at some point? I mean, there are other companies, my previous employer, in my opinion, it's probably worth more in pieces and individual assets than as a whole. So as you get these huge companies that are well over a billion dollars, who at that point comes in and buys those? It's a great question, John. Actually, I wondered years ago, uh, could you get too big and hurt your value because there are less potential suitors out there? In other words, did a $100 million catalog that traded at 20, mil- 20 multiple, if you were a billion and a half and there were only three buyers out there, you traded something less than that. I was completely wrong about that. There is a premium for size. And, you know, we've named some really large inst- institutional investors and they're happy to make billion, two billion, three billion dollar acquisitions. Yeah, I think things outside of the music business have proven that big companies sell to big companies all the time. To go back to the retail investor question, yes, you can buy hypnosis around Hill stock on the LSE. You can also it, it, you, it would not be difficult to find funds to buy into that are doing capital raises all the time. The only problem with that is you have no idea what they're buying. So you have to trust that your money is going to be used well to acquire that IP. Uh, if you want a little bit more hands-on, if you don't have a ton of money, you can certainly go on an auction site like Royalty Exchange. There's a lot of retail investment on there. They have a secondary platform you can also sell on. Anote out of uh, Asia is, uh, is another one of those. So yeah, if you have at least a million bucks, call me, we'll find you some. Like a true broker. I love it. Well, you know, I don't know if there's any parting thoughts or final thoughts here, but this has been terrific. The feedback I've already gotten live from folks messaging me has been great. I'll reiterate, I'm always happy to facilitate introductions. So if you uh, received the invite from me, let me know if there's anybody on the panel that you want to talk to. We'll be including contact information in the show notes when we publish this uh, probably next week as well. But, you know, I want to thank everyone on the panel for making time on a beautiful Friday morning to, to join us. And um, I guess as we wrap up here, who you like for the Masters? Osher, who you got? Oh, man, I entered a pool and I think, gosh, I'll have to look. I think I've got Justin Rose. He's looking good, I think. As of looking good today. so far, but we got, what, three more days? Yeah, yeah. Paul, Andy? I'm unfortunately not a golfer, so good luck to everybody. <laughs> I'm a bourbon guy. That's my hobby. Yeah, next time we're doing the panel discussion at your place, man. So I think that's, that's the takeaway I've got from this whole Come thing. Come on over. Man, I'm more of a race fan. So we sponsored Tyler Reddick in the NASCAR Cup Series. Watch him on Sunday. That's what he's got to say. <laughs> well played. I love it. Yeah, I'm excited for, for us to host the Formula One. I think that's going to be really cool. Yeah, that'll be cool. I'm proud to say, well, it's IndyCar, not Formula One, but a proud owner and partner in that. So that should be a cool event too. Yeah, absolutely. Love, love the traffic that'll come with. Totally fine you're, with it. You're, you're welcome, buddy. <laughs> well, thank you all again for the time. This has been great. Really appreciate it. It's a super exciting, cool space that I think more and more people are trying to enter into. So definitely encourage anyone listening to this live or after the fact, reach out to these guys because they are authorities. They've been doing it a long time and, you know, being based in Nashville, 
I actually, you know, trust them inherently. So I think they'll give you all good advice and they can be good stewards if you're looking to enter into the marketplace. So with that, we'll kind of close it down. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. See you guys. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 